Blog Talk Radio. Great. 
following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Let me read this passage to you while you're preparing your thoughts for our study. Ephesians 1.15 Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, that scripture is so loaded with great truth that we're not going to be able by any means to exhaust its content this time, next time, or for that matter, probably ever in our thinking. But it introduces to us a very important portion of the first chapter. This is a prayer by the Apostle Paul. It is a prayer in response to the great statement of theology in verses 3 to 14. Now, if you've been with us, you know that from verse 3 through 14 is one long sentence. And it is a sentence designed to tell us what it is that God has done for us in Christ. In other words, what we possess in Christ. It discusses the great concept of election, the great concept of redemption, and the great truth of inheritance. In the past, God elected us, He redeems us, and in the future, gives us an inheritance. Now, the truths in verses 3 to 14 are really beyond the possibility of the human mind to grasp. Frankly, our human mind cannot reach that deep into the truth of God. That is something we cannot do. We cannot mine that kind of truth out of our humanness. In 1 Corinthians, there is a very important text in this regard, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, verse 9 we could start with, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. In other words, empiricism or experiment can't see it, eye or ear, and intuition and rationalism can't see it, neither has it entered into the heart of man. It can't be known externally. It can't be really known internally. The things that God has prepared for them that love Him. But God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, watch the next line, yes, even the deep things of God. You see, in order for us to even understand this incredible legacy that's ours in Christ, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit. For what, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.11, for what knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. In other words, we must depend upon the Spirit of God for an understanding of the deep things of God. And believe me, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 are the deep things of God. Tremendous truths, deep truths that our human mind cannot conceive. So, 
having delineated something of these truths that are ours in Christ, Paul then moves to pray for us that we would understand these truths. It doesn't do any good to know them if we don't understand them, because if we don't understand them, we can't live them, see. So, in chapter 1, Paul begins with describing our position in Christ. Then he prays that we'll understand it. In chapter 2, Paul describes our position in Christ. Then in chapter 3, again, he prays that we'll understand it. Finally, in chapter 4, he says, now that you've got it and you understand it, here's how to live it. So twice, he describes the believer's position. Chapter 1, chapter 2. Twice, he prays that we'll understand it. Chapter 1 and chapter 3. Finally, in chapter 4, he says, now that you've got a grip on it, live it. Now, the point is this, people. You cannot live what you do not, what? Understand. Understand. You can't live it. You cannot function on principles you don't know. No Christian has ever yet lived the Christian life who didn't know what it was. You've got to have it. You Christians all over the place are frustrated no end, trying to live a life that's never been defined for them. And Paul knows, as a man of God, that it is not just a case of telling people, you've got to pray that God will energize the information. Now, I believe that that's why in Acts 6, the Bible says that the apostles said, we will give ourselves continually to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Why? Because the ministry of the Word must be energized by the Spirit of God, and that is sought in intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. I don't think that the man of God's job is just to pray for the broken legs and the broken arms and the bad backs and the diseases of his people. I think he is to pray that they, as it says in verse 17, would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope of their calling. It's not enough just to teach. It must be taught and then prayed in, as it were, by the energy of the Spirit of God released as a response to intercessory prayer. Now, what really is going on here is simply this then. Paul is describing our position and praying we'll understand it before he tells us how to live it in chapter 4. Now, knowing your position is important. You know, if you take a new job... So, uh, usually at some point they give you a description of what you're supposed to do. Uh, sometimes it's called a portfolio if you're an executive. If you're on an assembly line, they tell you what to do. You don't have to know everything. You just need to know what you do, and you can't start the process until you know. And sometimes you have to be trained for a job. Well, same thing is true in athletics. As an athlete, as an ex-athlete, better correct that, getting old, as a former athlete, one of the things that I can remember coach after coach talking to me about was, was my position. I started out in high school playing shortstop on a baseball team when I was in the ninth grade. And so the coach said, now I gotta to explain to you how to play the position properly. In basketball, it was playing guard. In football, it was a, it was a quarterback. And I had to learn my position before I could play it. 
I remember when I was in college, we had a great athlete on our football team. The guy was just physically super quick, fast, tremendously strong, really could pump weights, and, and very, very, very aggressive. You know, the kind of a guy that you could get in the locker room to go full blast and put his head into a locker. You know, just that kind of a guy. Just, you know. Well, that used to be a big thing when I was in college. See if you could find the space between the two-by-fours on the plaster wall and put your head through it, you know. Those were not the Phi Beta Kappa athletes, incidentally. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that was part of it, see. Well, so Kurt was this guy's name. And I mean, he was tough as nails. And they, they, they decided to make him a middle linebacker. That's what he'd been in high school. And, of course, he was all over the place. When you get to college, he gets a little more sophisticated, and you can't run amok. And so they tried to design for Kurt some limitations to what he could do. Now, the idea was, you got this much territory. This is your position. Now, stay there. Because when you leave there, we're in trouble. But invariably, what would happen was that the quarterback would make a fake somewhere, and Kurt would be long gone after the first fake. The counter would come back and goodbye because nobody was home where Kurt was supposed to be. Well, this went on for about four games, and finally this guy, who was probably the best athlete we had on the team, wound up on the bench because he couldn't play his position. Now, this is just part of it in anything you do. You're given an assignment, the parameters are defined, and you're asked to fulfill those. Number one, you must hear the definition of it. Number two, you must understand it, then you can do it. But you can't do it without the first two. Same thing is true of the Christian. You can't just try to get people to behave in a certain manner unless they understand the parameters and definition of what it is that they're asked to do. And yet, you know, it's a sad thing, but it's true. Church after church after church after church, people will get up and they'll tell people what to do, but they never give them the parameters or an understanding of what it is that they're really doing. You know, you get up and you exhort people to live the Christian life and do what's right and live for God and get dedicated, consecrated, irrigated, whatever it is, and, you know, <laughs> goes on and on. And try to get them to live it up. And you, you, you really are, you're working on them from the standpoint of sort of a halftime pep talk every Sunday to try to jack them up again and get them rolling, see. Or else you put them under a guilt trip and they begin to feel like they're just really, they got to do this or God is going to be right on them, see. And so they get to feel guilty, or you intimidate them, or there's a certain peer pressure exerted on them, and if they don't function, they're not one of the in-groups, see? And all of this bypasses the real motive for living the Christian life. The real guts of it, the real heart of it, the real base of it is simply understanding who you are in Christ. That's the base, knowing your position. I remember as a little kid that people were always reminding me who I was because my father was a preacher. And my father was one who was also always reminding me who I was because he felt that I should live in a certain manner so that it wouldn't reflect on his ministry. And I had some trouble with that because I was kind of a rambunctious little guy. And, and uh, I remember, well, there's a lot of things I remember. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I can think of a couple of things. When I was a real kid, I used to tell stories sometimes. I remember one thing my dad, I bit for a while when I was little. I bit other little kids, and um, I don't know what I was lashing out at, but my father finally put a sign around my neck, do not play with me, I bite, and I had to, <laughs> I wore that sign every day for a week and never bit another kid. It worked, and I remember when I was a little kid, my dad also tied me to the clothesline for a week so I wouldn't cross the street 
when I was told not to. But he was very concerned that I live up to the standard that he had set. <laughs> See, I'm just like the rest of you, right? But I remember one time, uh, I, was, I got into a situation where I was uh, prone to tell fibs. And, and I, could, I, did, I could make up some really good ones. And I remember in the second grade, I told my teacher that my dad was chopping wood and he chopped off his legs. And, uh, and in fact, I carried it on day after day. I had the teacher really concerned and, and so forth and so on. I was giving him a day-by-day description of the hospital and how everything was going. And, and we had an open house at the end of the week, which I hadn't forgotten about, and my father came. The teacher looked at my father and said, Oh, Reverend MacArthur, you're doing so well. <laughs> He said, huh? And I was taken home and uh, soundly thrashed. And I, there were several things in my life. I remember one time when I did something very bad and I wound up in deep, deep trouble. And, and uh, my mother said to me, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what that does to your father? And his ministry and so forth and so forth. Well, you know, in a sense, that was okay. I mean, you say, well, you shouldn't scold a kid on that basis. Yeah, it's all right to do that, I think. We do have a certain responsibility to honor our parents. That's biblical. But, you know, I always think back on that, and I think about the fact... That, by the way, I don't do those things anymore. I just want you to know that. But I, uh, but I just think back about the fact that, you know, that's a great basis for a Christian life. You know, I am who I am in Christ. Therefore, I behave the way I behave, see? This is basic to Christianity. You must understand who you are in Christ. That and that alone is the foundation upon which you operate. And if all you do is just get in the pulpit or all you do is just try to challenge yourself to live the Christian life, whimsically breeding yourself sort of into it emotionally, you're going to miss it. You've got to understand the foundation principles. This is who I am. This is my position. This is my understanding of it. And Paul is praying, oh, God, may they deeply understand who they are. May they get a grip on this incredible reality that they are one with the eternal God through Christ, that all of the, of the blessings of the heavenlies are theirs, that this is the standard of their existence forever, and may they live like it, see? That's what he's after. And so I tell pastors all the time, man, when you get into the pulpit, teach positional truth. Teach people what their position in Christ is. Then tell them how to act. If they don't know who they are, they don't know why they ought to act that way. So important. Position and practice. Now, you have to make a distinction in all of your study of the Bible between those two things. People who don't distinguish between those two things really get confused. If you don't understand what statements in the Bible are positional and what are practical or what deal with your standing before God and what deal with your experience, you'll never interpret the Bible right. For example, in one passage in the Bible, it simply says this, now you are holy. You say, me? That's right. You're holy. In another verse, it says to the very same people, cleanse yourselves from all filthiness. Now, wait a minute. You just said we're holy, and now you say cleanse yourselves from filthiness. But you see, if you don't know the difference, you're going to go like this and think at one minute you're holy and one minute you're filthy. The fact of the matter is you're holy in your position before God in Christ, and you're not in your practice. So that this is the way the Christian life goes. Here is your position in Christ, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, one with Christ, an eternal, unchanging, invariable reality. 
but your practice is down here. And the Christian life is making your practice equal your what? Your position. That's it. That's it. It's making your practice equal your position. Now, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand our position because he knows that unless we do, we're not going to have the right motive to live the life. I'm a child of the King. I am one with Jesus Christ. He lives in me and through me. Now, that demands out of me a certain kind of behavior, right? That's the essence of his thought. So, he has shared in the first 14 verses the great, deep, rich truths of what is ours in Christ. And now he prays that we would understand it. He prays that we would get a grip on it. And people, I want you to understand this. Christian growth has nothing, I'll say it again, Christian growth has nothing to do with your position in Christ. Nothing. When you were saved, you were in Christ. How much of your sin was forgiven? All. You receive eternal life. You're made perfect. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. God sees you as absolutely perfect and righteous. That's your position. Christian growth has nothing to do with it. But your practice is where the growth comes. I've often said that the Christian life is the process, watch this, of becoming what you are. Okay? Becoming what you are. Now, let me illustrate for a minute. There are a lot of people who think that Christian growth, like when you grow and mature as a Christian and you develop, makes God like you better. Now, we're kind of like this. We're this way humanly. You know, we say um, to our kids now and then, well, mommy won't love you if you do that. Well, I'll like you a lot better if you do this. God is not like mommy. What you do or don't do has absolutely no effect on your position before God. You can't do anything to make Him like you better. You can't do anything to make Him like you less because He loves you totally and perfectly in Christ, right? You can't do anything to make Him forgive you more or less. He forgave you already everything. You can't do anything to earn more salvation or to give up some of it. You can't do that because you already have it total and complete. There's no more or no less. You see, positionally, it's all yours. You are already accepted in the Beloved One, verse 6 says of chapter 1. Already. We're already in God's favor. We're already in God's grace. For Christ's sake, everything is settled. We are one with Christ. He sees us just as He sees Jesus Christ. Nothing you do can increase you in God's favor. Nothing you do can decrease you in God's favor positionally. Your standing is perfect. Colossians 2.10 says, And you are complete in Him. Hebrews 10 says, and He has perfected you forever by the one offering of Jesus Christ. Positionally perfect. Com positionally complete. Second Peter 1, He says that you have been made a partaker of the divine nature. Perfection again. Positionally, you're in Christ. He doesn't see you anymore as an individual in that sense. He sees you in Christ with His righteousness. You are a partaker of the divine nature. Peter says you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have received great and precious promises. But then Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1, verse 4 to say, verse 5, now that you have that position, here's how to match up your practice. Add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge, patience, to patience, so forth, goodness, to goodness, brotherly love, to brotherly love, kindness, etc. 
In other words, he's saying now, get your practice moving toward your position. This is who you are. This is how you act like it. You know, it's kind of like the difference between a baby and a pollywog. You know, when I was a little kid, and you were too, you used to collect pollywogs. And a pollywog was a little blob with a tail. And you'd get a little pollywog in a coffee can or something or a jar, and you'd watch that little pollywog, and you'd drop in some grass or something, and pretty soon that little pollywog would spring and a couple of legs would come out in the back, right? And a little while later, you didn't have a polywalk. Something else would pop out of the front, and pretty soon you had a frog. But babies aren't like that. When a baby's born into the world, it's not a blob with a tail. And you don't wait three months and boing, boing, two legs pop out. <laughs> a little later, boom, little arms. Oh, Ethel, he's growing an ear, finally. No. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Now, the difference is this. When a baby comes into the world, it has all the parts. It's perfect. It just needs to grow, right? Same thing is true of a Christian. When you were born into the family of God, you were not a spiritual polywog. You weren't incomplete. You were complete. You were all there, all the parts, totally, completely there. It was simply a matter of maturing. And that's the way it is spiritually. What, what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 3.14 is dead right. He was right on center when he said it. He said, I know this, that whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. He was dead right. When God does a work of salvation, it's a total thing. It's complete. And you're perfect before God. And it's just a matter of growing to match your practice to your position. Just like that little baby learns to use all of those facilities and resources that are that baby's at birth. So instead of seeking more favor with God, instead of trying to make God like us better, instead of trying to be more fit for heaven, we should just thank God who has already made us, Colossians 1.12, listen to this, He has already made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You're already fit for it. Nothing you do will make Him like you better. He loves you so much already, it's impossible to love you more. So Christian growth has nothing to do with your position. It has only to do with your practice. And you need to understand that. And you don't want to run around trying to make God like you better. If you're a Christian, He loves you totally. You couldn't be any better positionally. But, oh, man, when you understand positionally what you have in Christ, when you understand all these resources, that you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that you were redeemed and your sins were forgiven, and He has granted to you to be a part of His eternal plan and to call you into that great unity with which the whole universe ultimately ends up, when you realize that this inheritance is planned for you, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, when you realize that all these things are yours in Christ, that you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. When you realize that all of that is yours and that's who you are, that ought to do something about how you live. Really should. And that's the bottom line. You cannot exhort people to a certain behavior unless they understand who they are. And so Paul here is praying that we and the Ephesians will understand Constant exhortation without theology just brings people under guilt. It doesn't motivate them. So the mature Christian understands his privileges, his possessions, checks out his resources, lives consistent with who he is. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 1, 
Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, now watch, that you walk worthy of the vocation to which you are called. He has spent three chapters, now watch me, three chapters describing the calling, and now he says, therefore, here is how you live. Now, if you've been at Grace Church any time, you know that that's a principle all through the New Testament. All through the New Testament. You go into the book of Romans, you've got 11 chapters of theology, and then in chapter 12, therefore, here is how you live. In Galatians, you've got four chapters of theology. Finally, chapter 5, therefore, here is how you live. Colossians, the first section, theology, therefore, here is how you live. That's the way it always is in the New Testament. Because position is the predicate, the basis on which practice is built. Now, let's look at his prayer then. We'll look at the first part of it, verses 15 to 17 this morning. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Stop there. Now, in this, he just introduces to us the idea that he is praying. Wherefore, it takes us back. On the basis of this tremendous inheritance that we have in Christ, I pray for you. And he says, I pray for you because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints. I, you say, well, what, what does that have to do with this prayer? Just this. Those two things are the indicators that their salvation was genuine. He says, I hear you have the two things that prove true salvation, faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints. Now, how did Paul hear this? Well, it had been four years about since he had ministered in Ephesus. But sea travel was relatively easy in those days because of the ships and so forth. And so uh, there was great accessibility to that little small part of the world around the north and west part of the Mediterranean. And additionally... Uh, there was a liberty that Paul enjoyed even while he was a prisoner, and that was that they allowed people to come and visit him. So there was a constant flow of Christians, no doubt, coming in and out of Paul's life. And they would be bringing him reports. And as I told you when we first studied the beginning of Ephesians, this letter was not only written to Ephesians, but no doubt all the churches of Asia Minor. And so it's probably that that he has in his mind. He says, of all of you churches in Asia Minor, I have been hearing about you. People visiting, coming by ship, perhaps walking on some of the great Roman highways that would give them access to Paul's location. And so Paul says, I've been hearing good things. In fact, I hear two things. I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. And those, beloved, are the cardinal things. Those are the basic aspects of a true Christian. A true Christian is marked by faith in the Lord Jesus, which gives evidence of itself in love toward all saints. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11, it says there, If you claim to have saving faith and hate your brother, you're a liar. Those two go together. By this will all men know you're my disciples, John 13 says, if you have love one for another. And love, as we've defined it so many times, is sacrificial selflessness. Serving others sacrificially, unselfishly. True faith always springs into love. And so he says... I've heard about it. It's genuine. I see it. Now, I want you to see these two things because they're very important. First of all, your faith in the Lord Jesus. 
the Lord Jesus. You see, salvation begins with believing Jesus is Lord. You see that? I was speaking in Miami this week, and a pastor came up to me afterwards, and he says, well, he said, he was kind of, I don't know what, kind of on edge, I think. He said, well, he said, I suppose you're one of those lordship salvationists. I said, what is that? He says, you don't know about lordship salvationism? I said, no, I don't. He says, well, you probably believe that in order to be saved, you have to receive Jesus as Lord. I said, as a matter of fact, I don't know any other way. He said, yeah, I thought so. I said, you, you don't, you're not a lordship salvationist? Sounds like... I, I, he said, no. No. I said, uh, let me ask you a question. I said, is Jesus Lord? Well, he, he didn't really want to answer, I guess, because he said, well, well, there is a sense in which he is. I said, well, is Jesus Lord? Yes or no? Yes. Well, yes, it's right. He's Lord. So if you receive him, does he come as who he is? Yes, he'd have to, right. Let me ask you this, I said. Does Philippians 2 say that every knee should bow and confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God? And I said, does Romans 10 say that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, thou shalt be saved? Well, he says, but it doesn't appear in the Gospel of John. I said, what doesn't appear in the Gospel of John? Jesus is Lord? No. He says, the idea of lordship salvationism. I said, I don't know what you're saying. I said, I don't know. What, you just tell me what you're going to do with Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess Jesus as Lord, thou shalt be saved. And then he just said, yes, well, you're a lordship salvationist. And he walked off. <laughs> I, I still don't know where, where he was. How you get salvation minus the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a problem. I think what he was trying to say was that you can receive him as just as Jesus, just as the Savior, without acknowledging him as Lord. But he'd have a tough time handling a couple of passages in the New Testament. The point here is, Paul says, I know you're genuine because your faith is in the what? The Lord Jesus. You don't receive him as... Savior, and then later as Lord, you get him who he is. Now, whether you respond to his lordship or not is another issue. But he's Lord. Now, the second thing he says, not only is your salvation evident by the faith in the Lord Jesus, but your love unto all the saints. Do you notice that this love is indiscriminate? You notice that a true Christian doesn't pick and choose. He loves, and by virtue of that, whoever gets in front gets loved. We used to say this little phrase, well, I love him in the Lord which means, personally, he can't stand them. <laughs> Remember that one? Well, I love him in the Lord. As if you had a little pipe coming out of you, you could squirt him with God's love, you know. <laughs> you, can't un, you can't unscramble the egg, folks. If you love him, you love him, and the Lord loves him. And if you don't love him, then the Lord doesn't love him through your not loving him. You love them, all the saints. You can't be discriminate. The world picks and chooses. Paul says in Philippians 2, I pray that you would have the same love. What that means is to love everybody, what? The same. 
And in 1 John 3, he says, love in word, not in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Anybody who has a need and don't shut up your heart of mercy when you see them with a need. You can learn all the theology you want and spin off all of the dogma you want, but if you don't love, then you are nothing but sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And true salvation goes from the head to the heart and reaches right out to touch other people. And he says, I am so thankful to God that I've heard about you, that you have faith in the Lord Jesus, and that you love the saints. Now, you know something's kind of sad. That Ephesian church, man, they started out right. But when you get to chapter 2 of Revelation and verse 4, the Lord Jesus writes them a letter. And the Lord Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I have something against you because you have left your, what, first love. Sad to think about it. But the history of the Ephesian church is they left their first love and they went out of existence as a church. They went out of existence. There's got to be faith and love and balance. You know, the monks and the hermits had a loyalty to Christ which separated them from men to live in lo alone in a desert place contemplating faith. It was loveless faith. It never touched anybody. The heresy hunters of the Spanish Inquisition and other ages had a loyalty to their faith, which caused them to literally persecute anybody with a difference. Loveless faith. And I'm afraid there are some Christians in the churches today who are hateful and bitter and resentful of other Christians, and it's loveless faith, and I question, in as I would the cases I just illustrated, whether it's even Genuine, saving faith. The genuine is marked by love. In fact, I'll tell you something, folks. You can't love the Lord Jesus Christ, put your faith in Him, without loving the people that He loves. Do you get that? You can't love the Lord Jesus without loving the people He loves. I'll never forget my son one time. I was driving in a car, and he leaned over to me, and it was about a certain person. He said to me, I love so-and-so. And I did a double take. I didn't even know I knew him. I said to him, what do you mean you love so-and-so? He says, I love so-and-so. I said, why do you love so-and-so? He said, because I always hear you say you love him. And I love him too then. Well, that's right. If I love the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 John 5, 1 and 2 says, if I love the Lord Jesus Christ, I will love those begotten by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of it. So he says, I commend you. And I pray for you, verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then his prayer of thanks turns to a petition. And I pray, he says, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And stop right there. He says, man, I'm praying for you that you'll understand your riches in Christ. Warren Wiersbe's pastor of Moody Church has written a little book called Be Rich. And in there he gives an interesting illustration about William Randolph Hearst, who was the late newspaper publisher. Hearst at one point in his life decided to invest a, a veritable fortune in the collecting of great pieces of art. And he was collecting them all over the world and storing them in warehouses in different places. And one day he read a description in one of his art uh, books or magazines or whatever a description of an incredibly valuable piece of art. 
and he determined that he had to have that piece of art. So he got his agent, and he sent him all over the world to find it. No one knew where it was. That guy went all over the world to find that art treasure for William Randolph Hearst. Months and months went by, and finally the man came back and reported, Mr. Hearst, I found it. And with great joy, he said, where, where was it? He said, it was in your warehouse. You bought it years ago. <laughs> Frantically searching for what he already possessed. Paul is praying here, Lord, deliver those Christians from frantically searching for what they already possess. Give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him so that they will know what is theirs and that they'll be able to use it in the living of life. See? Let's face it, people. We do spend a lot of time messing around, chasing stuff we've got. We say, Lord, I need strength. And the Bible says you can do all things through Christ who already strengthens you. Lord, I need love. The love of Christ is shed abroad in your heart. Lord, I need grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Lord, I need peace in the situation. I already left you all my peace that passes understanding. What else is there? You see, Christians scrambling around begging for what they've got. What a waste. And the Bible says you should just ask for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask it. And wisdom is the sense not to keep asking for what you've got. See, the point is this. Paul says, God, the human mind cannot conceive of the riches of our position in Christ, so please, God, grant to them this understanding. Only the Spirit can search the deep things and reveal them to us. Such understanding is beyond the human mind, and God must enable us to understand. So he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Oh, I love those titles. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That identifies it with Him. After all, we're in Christ, right? And if we're in Christ, then He's our God too. And He's the Father of glory. That means the one who possesses all things. All glory is His. And so He prays to that God that He may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, notice the word spirit. God grants us a spirit. It is an, an anarthrous construction, the Greek, no article, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, people have discussed what spirit is this. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit, that God would grant us the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's Paul's prayer because every Christian already has the Holy Spirit, right? I don't think that's it. And it's, besides that, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit. So I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. We don't need to ask for the Holy Spirit. We already have the Holy Spirit. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 says, and Romans 8 9 says all Christians have the Holy Spirit. So that wouldn't be it. And others have said, no, it's the human spirit, that he would give us a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he's talking about the human spirit. I don't think that's right either because we already have a human spirit. The word pneuma, in which we get breath and air, and pneumatic, pneumonia, it's the Greek word, can be translated a lot of ways. And I think the way it should be translated here is as a disposition, an influence, or an attitude which governs the soul of someone. Let me illustrate this. It doesn't have to be the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. It can just be an attitude. For example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. He wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. He was talking about an attitude. 
those were humble people. Now, when we see somebody who's sad, we say, oh, their spirit's sad. Or we see somebody really playing hard at some game, we say, that is spirited play. Or we see somebody really happy and we say, boy, he's in high spirits. And all we mean is an attitude, an attitude, a disposition, an influence in thinking. And I believe that what Paul is saying is this, give them the fullness of an attitude of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Oh God, he says, let them know in their mind how much they possess in Christ. Give them a deep, rich, keen, strong, full understanding. Now, I would add to that that I think the Holy Spirit and the human spirit are also both implied. And what Paul is praying is this. Watch. God sends the Holy Spirit to work on the human spirit to create the right spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Because it's the work of the Spirit. First Corinthians 2, I read you earlier, only the Spirit can search the deep things of God. And by the way, the word revelation deals with the imparting of knowledge, and the word wisdom deals with the use of it. So he's saying, God, I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will work on the human spirit to produce the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That is, that they will know their position and their resource, and that they will use it. See? Step out and use it. So he wants the believer to have a full, deep knowledge of God, not intellectual but something deeper than that, something far deeper. And I'm telling you people, I've said this for years and years, and I'll say it till I drop over. The Christian life is predicated on what you know. It's got to be here before you can live it. It's got to be revelation before it can be wisdom. You've got to receive it before you can use it. And that's why we spend our time teaching the Word of God. Pat O'Brien, that CBS reporter, said to me, I think I've seen the difference between the true Christians and the false Christians. He said the true Christians are those who are really heavy into studying the Bible. Well, what he was really seeing was that when somebody is heavy into studying the Bible, he gains the revelation of God that is applied in wisdom and his life is what it ought to be. See, that's what he sees. So he prays that we would have the divine mind, that we would be able to do what he said to the Colossians, to set our affections on things above and not on things of the earth, to get our mind out of the gutter and onto the great, grandiose, marvelous magnificencies of God. And so Paul prays, God, it's not enough. It's not enough that I just tell them the facts. I pray for them that they would understand the imparting of truth and the use of it in the knowledge of Him. You know, you have Christ. Do you know Christ? If you know Christ, do you really have this, this attitude of wisdom and revelation, this deep sense of knowing God's heart and God's mind? Now, Paul goes on to bring three specific things that he wants us to grasp, and we'll study those next time. Let's pray. It's so great, Father, to know that all the resources that are in Christ, are granted to us by faith. Thank you, Father, for every person here, everyone a special life, everyone especially beloved of you, everyone uniquely designed and made. And, Father, for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, for those who know and love Him, everyone a part of your eternal plan. And some, Father, who haven't yet said yes 
but you're calling them by your Spirit. They're part of the plan too. They're some of your people yet unborn. Bring them to yourself today. For those who are in the family, Father, help us to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, a spirit produced as the Holy Spirit works on our human spirit to give us comprehension beyond what is possible in the normal human mind, to know the deep things of God and knowing them to be able to use them, that our position may be known, understood, and lived out. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Thinking how does one define wise? Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer Fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder But as the beat plays, they lose wonder After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet But it's part of common sense that the artist time will end To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend They don't come close to understanding How you can go from most demanded To abandoned in the ocean stranded Surrounded by the waves of your weariness Some things you only learn from age and experience And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see The time is coming when they will be a faded memory Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped Yeah, what in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they want to know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp As he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return, what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared at the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like petrol. The new praise that made the waves in the metro. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And fades like echoes. Echoes, echoes, echoes.
Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped Yeah, what in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped Yeah, better plan for the future kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the sages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverence But what a man sees under heaven Ecclesiastes 111 No matter who you are, death aims to stop you Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra Before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus, astounding amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never fade Never fade, never fade Speaking without words. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. You probably enjoy honey, but have you considered how tiny bees find the nectar and pollen they need to make it? Well, they go scouting. When a worker bee finds a new food source, she flies back to the hive to tell the others and get their help in harvesting. Now, obviously, honey bees can't speak, but they do communicate. To tell others about her newfound bounty, a worker bee will do a woggle dance. This tells the others which direction to fly in, how far away it is, and even what kind of food they'll find. Not bad for a bee that can't talk. God's design is incredible. Creation cries out in testimony to our Creator. Discover more about God's incredible creation at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. I go to church with my friends. I have a joy that never ends. Not because of anything I've done.
Not-so-nutty squirrels. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Global Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. You know, we've all smiled at the antiques of squirrels in our backyard. While they may seem a bit nutty to us, they've actually been brilliantly designed. Squirrels are very resourceful. They're able to chew holes in trees to make a home or even dry out mushrooms to make mushroom jerky for a quick snack. They also hide thousands of nuts to last all winter and to avoid another animal stealing their stash, they'll pretend to bury nuts to distract from the real burial site. They even know how to bite the embryo of a white oak acorn before they bury it so it can't sprout and ruin their future meal. We see God's design everywhere we look in the incredible creatures he's made. There's much more to discover about the world God has made at AnswersRadio.com and find nature programming on our Answers TV streaming platform at AnswersRadio.com.
It's all or nothing. This is Ken Ham, author of the book on millions of years and church compromise in six days. Woodpeckers are a fun sight in your backyard. You'll often hear one tapping on a tree even before you see it. So how are woodpeckers able to hammer through solid wood? After all, we would get a concussion. Well, God gave them several features that work together to absorb an incredible amount of force. An elastic beak, muscles and tendons to support the head, a special spongy bone behind the beak, and a special skull bone, one that's filled with fluid. You know it takes each part to keep the woodpecker from giving yourself massive brain damage. How could random chance processes produce such a system? Well, it couldn't. They were created. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and learn about our popular full-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com.
Behemoth, a dinosaur. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. The book of Job in the Old Testament describes a creature that's the largest God made. It had ribs like bars of iron, strong muscles, and a tail like a cedar tree. So what was it? Well, many Bible footnotes say it's a hippo or an elephant. But remember, the Bible's inspired and inerrant. Footnotes are not. If you look at a hippo or an elephant, they don't really fit the description, especially in the tail. But there is a creature that seems to match the mighty sauropod dinosaurs. They're the biggest land creatures God made, and they certainly stood as a testimony to his greatness. So the next time you see fossil remains of one, be reminded how awesome God is. Get the truth about dinosaurs when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and try out our Answers TV video streaming platform with a free trial at AnswersRadio.com.
in his image. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word and the gospel. Equality is a very hot button issue here in America. How do we think on issues such as feminism and so-called racial equality? Well, we compare what anyone says against the authority of the word of God. For example, we understand that God has created every single person in his image. While we're different, men and women are created equal before God. And since we're all descended from Adam and Eve, we're all one race. There aren't many different races, just one. Different ethnicities arose partly because of the events of the Tower of Babel when God divided everyone into different language families. According to God's word, we're all equal before God, made in his image. Find hundreds of our videos on our streaming platform with a free seven-day trial at AnswersRadio.com and find answers to your Bible questions at AnswersRadio.com. A mighty fortress A mighty fortress
here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you sure gonna die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. become seeker-sensitive pragmatists offering what we prefer on Sunday morning, but what pleases God. Imagine 30th anniversary, and I'm going to give my wife a gift for our 30th anniversary. First of all, 30th anniversary, you don't give a gift. You give multiple gifts. For those of you who are wondering, when you get there, just hold on to that. And so... 
there's going to be these multiple gifts. And there's a couple of ways that I can choose the gifts. One of the ways that I can choose the gifts is I can get a Ph.D. in my wifeology and learn her and watch her and question her and listen to her and see what she likes and what makes her tick and try to figure that out and then get a number of gifts, one gift that's a sure thing, I see this, I know you like this, and another gift that says I've investigated and asked some folks and they pointed me in this direction, and another gift that says both of those could have been wrong, so there's that. And so you, 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 you give her those, those gifts. Well, there's another way I could say, you know, I really like watches. And I do. I really like watches. They don't necessarily have to be expensive watches. Sometimes it's just a watch with a story. But I just, I like watches. I mean, watches, I'm passionate about watches. Passionate about watches? I'm passionate about Bridget. I'll get Bridget a watch. How do we determine what we are going to do when we gather on Sunday morning? The answer is found in the regulative versus normative principles of worship. You can pragmatically offer worship that pleases you and the world, or we can ask the right question, what is the worship that most pleases God? What do we do when we find ourselves in a public place where a Catholic priest, Islamic cleric, or a Mormon elder begins leading prayer? Excellent question that I don't think a whole lot of evangelicals have considered as thoroughly as we ought. This is the subject of ecumenism, when we join with other people with whom we do not have agreement. Now, there can be a biblical ecumenism. Jesus wants us to have a unity, but not without truth. You can't have unity without truth. They don't coexist. If we don't have core doctrines in common, we don't have unity. Only those people who believe rightly about the Trinity, salvation, about the Bible, with those people and those people alone do we have fellowship. When we join with people to pray or to even stand on a platform giving the impression that we have agreement with one another when we don't, in that case, I think we're actually sinning. Hey, where do you get that from? Well, I think I get it from Second John, where we are told, now remember, culturally what was happening, John instructs the local church, be careful, don't bring a false teacher into your home. Don't provide hospitality for somebody who isn't preaching rightly, because it tells the whole town that you've endorsed the false teacher. What's the principle? As Christians, we don't do anything that would give the impression to a watching world that we have agreement and unity with people that we don't have agreement and unity with. Why? Because it besmirches, that's right, I said besmirches the gospel. Truth is that precious to God. Correct theology is that crucial. It is that important. And if we do anything that waters that down, I'm not sure that there's a greater sin that we can commit. So 
what do we do if we find ourselves in a situation like that? We're invited to the wedding of a religious system that is false. If you participate and you are telling anybody in attendance, I agree with this, then I think you need to think about it long and hard. If you can be in a place, perhaps assuming a posture that indicates I'm not participating in this, then perhaps you could stay there. But otherwise, when we recognize the importance of not giving a false impression regarding the subject of truth, a lot of times we should have to skedaddle. Good. That was from Wretches, their YouTube channel, W-R-E-T-H-E-D, Wretches, and also on Wretched.org. And they have a radio show and TV show. That's taken from their TV show, but they put clips of it on YouTube or maybe that's all. Well, I think they need to do several ones, too, or not just from the TV show. And I'm going to do for you now. I'm going to play This Is God, Me, Me, and You. Yeah. He made us all, y'all. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we all have a different story. Come on. God made me and you. Me and you, yo. God made me and you. For our joy, yeah. For our joy and for his glory. For his glory. God made me and you. Me and you, yeah. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. When God created the heavens and earth, he did it to show off his glory and worth. Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. God has designed when God 
God made me and you. Let's go.
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cost. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. Saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful.
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. That's all I have for Truth Be Told Radio. Gonna go out with Yancy and friends and the real reality. Bye for now.